You're listening to Atlas of Chiropractic, the show where we uncover upper cervical chiropractic care for healthcare professionals, students, and potential patients. I'm Dr. John Stenberg, and with my co-host, Dr. Cameron Bearder, we are your guides to a behind-the-scenes look at the science and practice of upper cervical chiropractic. Welcome back to the Atlas of Chiropractic podcast. I've got a guest with me today who's kind of a new friend. We're just kind of getting to know each other here, uh, but I'm really excited to share her perspective. Haley Fitzgerald's a physician's assistant. She works at Global Neurosciences Institute in Philadelphia, correct? Yep, the greater Philadelphia area. Greater Philadelphia area. So she works on a neurosurgical team, and they they work with a lot of folks that have a, a variety of different um, conditions. And, and specifically, we're going to talk a bit about Chiari today. But um, I think I got, we, we may have been briefly introduced or at least kind of crossed paths at the ASAP conference this past summer. Yep. Um, my co-host who's not with me today, Dr. Cameron Beard, and I attended that conference, and we're really we did a recap episode. I don't expect that you've listened to that, but I'll just kind of give you my our, our impression of it. Um, we were humbled, you know, by by just the the folks in the room. I mean, just top top world class of physicians that have kind of made themselves available to patients. That's such a that's such an interesting way to do a conference and inspiring. Yeah. We were also really challenged, you know, with the uh, content and, and, you know, came, it came from a lot of different angles, came fast, uh, but the docs were inspiring. They did a great job of bringing it down to earth for the patients that were there being approachable and humble. And so we, we were really, um, we got a lot of value out of that and, and it's prompted some further discussions and research. So um, just so you guys know, you know, on the other end, it's, it's a really well done conference and appreciate yeah, Dr. Vez and, and all the docs who, who went out of their way and spent time away from their families and practice to do that. I think it's a very unique conference. It's the only conference that I've been to where it's primarily, you know, directed towards the patient population, not just like your colleagues or like a specific community within healthcare. So it's very cool to see because you get a different perspective with all the questions and kind of what everyone's experience is with people who actually have the condition. So it was very yeah. cool. And a rare opportunity for those folks to get FaceTime literally with yeah. you know, with top docs in the field to ask specific questions about their cases and to and to just hear from the the experts. So really cool opportunity. Mm-hmm. But that's that's how this conversation started. I got yep. connected <laughs> online with GNI Neuro, and if you guys are, follow them on Instagram, they've got some good content. And I just also discovered your YouTube channel. There's there's a lot of good stuff there. The Grand Rounds videos are phenomenal. I mean, it's obviously parallel or not parallel, but just different from our field, but there's some really, really good information there. Uh, so check out yeah, those we try to pull, videos. Yeah, we try to pull speakers, you know, from the neurosurgical and, um, you know, neurological community in general. And every week we have, usually every week, uh, we have grand rounds. So we'll publish those almost weekly and we try to provide other types of content too. So on any type of social media, we're at GNI Neuro. Awesome. I appreciate you guys doing that, putting that information out. But uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, how did you become involved in this deal here? What's your your educational background and your path to the position you're in now? Yeah. So first off, thanks for having me. Um, my background, so I was always interested in the neurosciences. Uh, I went to Lehigh University for behavioral neuroscience um, in my undergraduate career. And then I've found out that I wanted to do something more clinical and hands-on. So I 
uh, applied to PA school and went to Temple. Uh, so the Lewis Katz School of Medicine at Temple and had a great experience there. Um, and then I worked for a year in an urgent care setting because I liked the you know small procedures and the hands-on work you could do there. But ultimately, I wanted to go back to my neurosciences roots, which led me to apply to GNI. And now I work in the outpatient clinic for uh, neurosurgical, uh, the neurosurgical side of things at GNI. Okay. So excellent. And, and yeah. give us an idea of sort of all the the spectrum of folks that you work with at GNI, because I know there's there's a wide range of conditions and and situations you guys deal with. Yeah. So we're lucky. We have a lot of experts in the field, and we kind of cover a wide array of diagnoses. Uh, which can range, you know, anywhere from, you know, functional neurosurgery with um, patients with like Parkinson's. Um, we can do brain tumors. We can do vascular surgery. Uh, it kind of goes across the spectrum. I work specifically with Dr. Vez or Dr. Veznet Arglu, and he focuses on he does vascular, so any anyone with aneurysms or ABMs or AB fistulas or carotid stenosis, um, we see those patients. And then we also see normal pressure hydrocephalus. Um, we see brain tumors, and we will see QRI malformation since he has been big in that um, field. It's kind of hard to – It's uh, it, it seems like it would be kind of hard to just – focusing on one, you know, on one service or one condition. It's like the neurovascular uh, concomitants with all this stuff. It's, it's almost hard to separate the two. And so inevitably yeah. you're, you're going to need to, to have, you know, specialists that can co-manage cases or can um, weigh in on cases. But what, so your, describe your role. So in that team, you know, obviously the surgeons are going to be performing the surgical procedures. Now patients are going to, walk through a series of steps before they get to that point. So talk about how the PAs there, GNI, how you interface with the patients and, and on the care team. Sure. So we have a team of both PAs and NPs. Um, so as uh, advanced practice providers, we are usually paired most of the time one-to-one -one with the surgeon. And what we will do is we will work as a team with the surgeon to assess the patients when they first come in kind of, you know, do the full workup and, you know, see whether they're surgical or not. Um, and then if they are, then as an APP, we make sure they're medically optimized and that they're, you know, especially with an elective surgery, that it's safe and they're they're ready to, you know, go through something like that medically. Um, and then after surgery, from an outpatient standpoint, I'll do a lot of the wound care. So like removing staples and sutures and making sure there's no signs of infection. And then I do a lot of the long-term care. So making sure, you know, checking in with the patients, making sure that they're doing okay and, you know, following up with them um, and making sure their symptoms are improving over time. So a lot of it is I'm kind of the first point of contact when any patients are calling the office because surgeons will be, you know, in the OR or doing a slew of things that it kind of filters through me. I decide what needs to be escalated and what the surgeon needs to address right away, or I can manage some problems on my own. Yeah. Yeah. And, and imagine, especially follow-up care and, and sort of tracking the, these patients over time, whether you're co-managing with neurology or neuropsychology or 
occupational therapy or whatever other types of steps come along the way seeing that play out over time and, and hopefully, you know, tracking good outcomes is, is the rewarding part of it is seeing the before and after, you know, and seeing people's lives transformed and, and sort of restored. Uh, that's, mm-hmm. that's always the, the fun part of patient care is seeing people's lives get better, but a lot of challenging, I'm sure a lot of challenging situations to troubleshoot through too, as you work through this. Yeah. And I think, like you said, I think that's one of the most gratifying parts of my job. And you probably see that as well as when you have more and more interactions with patients and you get to follow them over time that you actually feel like your work is doing something. And, you know, you can see that the more effort and time you put into interacting with these patients and making sure that they're okay, the the better outcomes they'll have and the better you'll feel in the long term. Yeah. Well, one thing I really appreciated that I heard from Dr. Vez is that you guys focus on, you know, treating the patient, not the MRI, treating the patient, not the symptom, just kind of keeping it focused on the person. You know, people have yep. PR malformations, people have AVMs, but it's it's a life. It's a person's life and there's implications in their families and in their workplace and in their hobbies and activities. Their their quality of life is, you know, wrapped up in all of this. And that's the that's the thing that we always have to keep front of mind, you know, it's it's to keep the patient centered in in the care strategy and be you know, we were talking offline here about communication and just building those skills of yep. helping folks understand. And especially when people are suffering and they're in pain, I mean, they're really, they're not at their best. That's the point, you know, of, of needing to intervene in the first place. So it can come with a exactly. little bit of an emotional weight to it too, I'd imagine. It's it's hard to pe- see people suffering and it's hard to, you know, um, just the volume of, of human suffering that, you know, sometimes you can encounter on a day-to-day basis. It's it's a little bit heavy. So how have you how have you managed that part of it? Um, sort of the emotional toll that it it could take. Yeah. So no, I totally agree with you. I think you know there's a lot of different aspects that you need to consider, not just you know whether someone's surgical or not, or you know what their imaging looks like, uh, which is why you know things like this are so important. Where you know you really need to come together with different types of healthcare professionals to kind of attack it together. Um, which is one of the things we're trying to do with the new Chiari Center that we're creating at GNI is, is you know, it's not just neurosurgeons that need to approach these patients. It's neuropsychologists, it's neuropharmacists, it's neurology, it's PT, it's OT, it's chiropractics. It's, it's all, everyone needs to kind of, you know, put in their two cents and their expertise to make p- patients better. Um, personally, I deal with the kind of, the acuity of patients kind of by just reaching out to other people who might have the you know the clinical expertise in certain things you know if if they're dealing with these serious conditions and might have some mental health concerns on the side then we would reach out to you know some of our partners that are specifically dealing with uh, the psychological aspect of things. So it's helpful to have you know a network that you can kind of rely on. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, you know even just in pain science and the biopsychosocial model of pain, which I know is you know kind of front of mind. It's it's understanding you know all the aspects that impact not just the clinical picture symptomatically, but also you know these things affect outcomes and these things affect you know, patient compliance, which is important for mm-hmm. outcomes. And so there's a lot to it. It's, it's, you know, we like the, we like the technical parts of it, but when you're dealing with humans, there's, there's the intangible skills that you also have to develop as a provider that help, 
yep. you know, knee to knee and bedside with a patient, even when you're performing your exam, just helping them understand findings and why it's relevant to what they're experiencing and what treatment paths that might open up for them um, from a comprehensive, you know, perspective. Yeah. And what you can find sometimes is that, you know, when they're in something like a neurosurgical office, you know, they're getting so much information in a short period of time with something that they're probably scared to, to one, find out about or two, pursue treatments for. So something that we do as PAs and NPs is, you know, follow up and make sure that they're gaining a full, complete understanding of what's going on and kind of supporting them through that process. Because, you know, just having that small visit usually isn't enough to gain that full understanding and kind of mentally process it as well. Yeah, yeah. And I'd imagine, too, these folks, by the time they get in front of you, it's they've been through the gamut. You know, they've tried a lot. They've been to a lot of offices. They've had a lot of opinions. They've probably been in support groups online and things like that, which comes yep. with its own set of challenges. And they they may be all over the place, you know, and they may even think they know what they need. And and I'd imagine there's always a lot of sort of uh, you've got trust building and rapport building to do along with just the technical side. Exactly. Yeah, and we're we're we have some like stroke support groups and other support groups that are starting up. So I think that'll be a helpful resource for them. Um, but there's also you know through ASAP that the organization we were talking about previously, there's a bunch of resources that these patients can also utilize. Yeah. And, and I, um, thinking of one patient I dealt with in particular who had a CSF leak that just took forever to get diagnosed. And, and there were so many ups and downs and challenges with that, just the toll that it took on the family to sort of walk through that diagnostic process and arrive at an answer and then treatment options and a solution. And then a second opinion and, and, and all of it, it's, it's a lot. It takes people a long time. I know even with Kihars, it's like, was it like seven years before they finally end up with a neurosurgical consult? That's a significant portion yep. of someone's life that they're, mm -hmm. they're wading through these challenges. And that's, um, that's a, when, it, when you think about just, I think a lot about time, you know, how I spend my time. I have a little boy, he's five years old. I've just seen him grow over time. I think so much about how we spend our time and the quality of the time that we have. And, you know, that I think is a, creates a real sense of urgency for me dealing with patients to like, let's, you know, let's get you where you need to go because man, is it precious, you know, and, and time spent suffering without answers is, is not the way that anybody sees their life playing out, you know? Yep. And so, uh, you know, it's even more, even more of a reason to you know, provide a compassionate environment, you know, for folks to receive care as well. And if you can so. imagine, yeah, if, like you said, going through all of that time, not really having answers and having a decreased quality of life, they come in once they finally get some answers and they're pointing in the right direction, they get to our office. They have an inherent distrust in the healthcare system because hmm. they've been through all of that suffering. So it kind of creates a wall and something that we have to break through, which is another layer to things when we are first assessing patients. Yeah. What was your first couple interactions, days, week? weeks, months at GNI, like, I mean, coming from an urgent care setting, I mean, this is a very different clinical setting for you. What was that transition like? Yeah. Um, GNI does a good job at getting people acclimated, especially like new APPs, because, you know, we don't necessarily go that in depth into things like QRA malformation and schooling. 
Um, So they have a good onboarding process to kind of get you up to speed. And because we have the model where we're paired with a surgeon, um, that communication is more in depth, especially in the beginning when you're just not really sure whether something needs to be escalated or brought to someone's attention. Uh, So it's a long process, but you get more comfortable. And I think I you know, I still have a lot to learn, but I became much more comfortable after like a year of seeing these patients um, because while we like to do patient-centered care and, you know, look at the individual patient, a lot of, you know, the the workup is similar. So you get more comfortable the more you see the same types of patients. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Just like anything with repetition and familiarity, there's more confidence, more pattern recognition, more uh um, proficiency with how you go through those steps. So exactly. Um, let's, let's talk about the Chiari side of things. I know there's a, there's a laundry list of diagnoses that you guys deal with, but on the Chiari side, I was thinking about what's relevant to our listening audience. And and I was kind of explaining to you offline that, you know, periodically as, as chiropractors who focus our treatment to the craniocervical junction, and there's a variety of ways to do that. You know, folks bring MRIs. They bring notes from other offices. We're we're looking at prior imaging history, and it's interesting that you know, incidentally, a lot of folks find out well, they've got this this carry malformation, and and I think there's even confusion about that terminology. You know, carry malformation is a that's a imaging measurement. You know, it's a diagnostic imaging uh, mm-hmm. finding. Carry syndrome and and sort of the way that that can manifest bio physiologically, pathophysiologically, that's a completely different set of circumstances, wide spectrum of things that folks may experience. So maybe explain a little bit about Chiari malformation, define that, how you guys diagnose it, uh, or what the standard for diagnosis is, and then we'll kind of talk about treatments and such. Yeah. So the definition is still, you know, not universally accepted, but typically what most people would say is that it's Descent of the cerebellar tonsils below the foramen magnum of about five millimeters. So we say five millimeters and below is usually a radiographic finding of Chiari malformation. Um, and, you know, that causes a problem because it almost creates like a plug in the craniocervical junction, which obstructs cerebrospinal fluid flow. And that can cause a slew of symptoms, like you said, a kind of syndrome of symptoms that most commonly produce pressure headaches, so headaches in the back of the head that can worsen with coughing, bending over, sneezing. Um, But it can also cause things like tinnitus. It can cause um, some numbness, and especially the upper extremities. It can cause weakness and hand grip weakness, um, you know, balance issues, brain fog. So it can, it can, present differently in different patients, but those headaches are usually the most common symptom that we see. Yeah. So. And there, you know, with, with headaches and I tell patients this pretty much every day, like, okay, we understand that you think you have a migraine, you know, that this is the term that everybody uses for an intense headache. And it's, you know, even just the diagnosis of migraine or migraine like headache, there is a list a mile long of, of, you know, factors that could influence that, you know, from a, musculoskeletal to neurological, you know, end of the spectrum and everything in between, you know, and it's like understanding that you have the symptom is only one part of, you know, starting the conversation and then teasing some of these details out and and understanding 
the aggravating and the leading factors and the family history mm-hmm. and the lifestyle variables and injury history and all that. It's, it's yeah. a, it, it really is a complex thing to work with folks that have, you know, this one symptom. And then you add into there some of the dizziness and vertigo and there's other stranger neurological symptoms that may not be consistent or that may not follow traditional patterns. God, I mean, other, I remember this from chiropractic school, our, one of our advanced uh, imaging professors always used to say that like, you know, if folks are entitled to more than one diagnosis, right? So we start mm-hmm. off on this like discovery of what are we dealing with here? How are we going to help this this person? And there there can be overlapping headache conditions. There can be multiple, you know, comorbid conditions that are, you know, making the, the symptomatic presentation worse. And and you guys probably, I don't know if you, you deal with it as much as we do, but it's, you know, people don't always tell you all the things you need to know. You know, you've got to yep. pull some of these details out of them in a good history, Definitely. And uh, I, I found for me, folks tell me what they think is related to what I do, right? So they tell me about the musculoskeletal mm-hmm. aches and pains, right? Sure. They tell me about those things. But when you start questioning along these lines, you, you come up with some interesting data points and it makes things uh, a little bit more complex, you know, with even just triage and diagnostics. But mm-hmm. the Chiari thing, I, I guess I should say too, we're talking about Chiari 1. There's like yes. different classifications, yes. right? So this is an yeah. adult's. Uh, Chiari one, five millimeters, and it kind of changes at different ages. Apparently, you know, the brain shrinks over time. So at 80, mm-hmm. it's going to be less than five would be considered, uh, you know, that Chiari. So that cerebellar tonsillar descent, though, I mean, we understand that the flow aspect of it is crucial, you know, and even just mm-hmm. watching Dr. Vez talk about the Grand Rounds video, it's just because you see some cerebellar tonsils below the frame of magnum doesn't mean that you need to decompress or that you need to go in there and do a exactly. uh, surgical intervention. There's other ways to qualify that this is actually not just responsible for the symptom, but is, is you know, detrimental to the health of the nervous system. So kind of walk through that process. Let's say folks come in, they've, they had a diagnosis from a neurologist, let's say on an MRI, mm-hmm. and, and they're trying to assess their treatment options. How do you guys build that out and understand that pathway? Yeah. So when they come into the office, they usually already have imaging. Um, So they've gone through that initial part of the workup. Uh, Like you said, you know, the obstruction of the CSF flow is the most important thing that we're trying to decipher, um, whether they have or not. But it's not always obvious on the initial MRI. Um, So what we'll look at is we'll get their symptoms, you know, see if it looks consistent with a Chiari type picture or we'll hash out whether there's other things going on, like you said, like migraines before, if they're having like photophobia, phonophobia, and it's like migraine type of associated symptoms, then we might not, or we might go down that path and see if, you know, that might be um, something that they're dealing with instead. But in general, we'll get a good clinical picture and do a physical exam to see what type of signs they have, whether it be, you know, the upper extremity weakness or like the grip strength weakness or hand atrophy um, or their balance is off, et cetera. Um, And then we'll look at the images. And if it's not clear, um, then we might, you know, order some further testing. So the level of tonsillar descent doesn't always uh, necessarily mean that they're going to have more or less symptoms or that they need mm-hmm. surgery more or less. Um, but if say they're on the borderline, like if they have five millimeters of descent, there looks like there might be some crowding. They have 
somewhat of like the symptoms we would expect. A lot of times what we'll do is we'll order a Cineflow study. So that looks at the pulsatile uh, CSF flow through the craniocervical junction, and we can clearly see whether there's flow or not anteriorly and posteriorly where that plug is. Um, So that is super helpful. And especially these patients that are kind of in that gray area. Um, yeah. But also things like the presence of a syrinx usually will indicate that they need surgery. Yeah, and that's a that's a pretty common finding with a Chiari, correct? Is that the, there's often a syrinx associated? Yeah. So the increase in the you know buildup of pressure in the CSF will kind of lead to that the CSF has nowhere else to kind of go. So the, it sometimes travels via osmosis into the central canal and it'll cause this cystic cavity to mm-hmm. form within the spinal cord and that itself can create a slew of symptoms as you can imagine with pressure being uh, put on the central canal and that the surrounding structures yeah i was blown away even just at the asap conference looking at the all the images and there was tons of mri studies that presented you know pre and post surgical but also just you know, expanding on, you know, this spectrum of, you know, um, intensity with these, with these situations. And there were folks Mm -hmm. with 20 millimeters of tonsillar descent with very little symptomatology, other folks with five or six with a gigantic syrinx that were, you know, basically disabled. And, and it's, it Mm -hmm. just really, because we look at a lot of bone films, you know, we do a lot, we use a lot of uh, 3D CT reconstructions and things like that. And so we're very fixated on biomechanics. But it's kind of, you know, reminds you that the picture is not the whole story, you know, that there is so much more to understand the functional consequence of these of these types of conditions. And and just to kind of uh, keep the keep the function front of mind, you know, keep the patient quality of life front of mind. It's like we can change the pictures. We know how to do that. You know, and there was I didn't realize the controversy with shunting. There's so much like, you know, different Mm -hmm. different opinions about what to do with that syrinx. But um it's interesting to see those pre and post images and see like, okay, we did a decompression. There's still a little bit of a syrinx, you know, and that's, that tissue was distended. You know, there was a uh, inappropriate amount of volume and pressure in that central canal. And there's, Mm -hmm. you know, there may be a little bit of a, uh, the post imaging may show some of that, but we know that functionally the patient's approved. We don't need to get too, you know, too upset about those, those subtle imaging findings. So it's, it's Mm -hmm. interesting to just understand just the, you know, some of those syrinx that we saw that were, you know, multi-level through different regions of the spine. It's like, mm-hmm. it's actually fascinating. The human nervous system is fascinating and it's how resilient it can be, you know, the human, sure. the human body in general, but um, it's really uh, eye-opening, you know, to see those, to see those images for us. And you guys see them all day. And, and even for patients too, they've seen their own imaging, you know, mm-hmm. so they have an idea of what this all means based on their own personal experience, but just understanding the spectrum, really eye-opening. Yeah. And it is crazy to see, you know, the syrinx, you know, just kind of like naturally absorbing, like the body will just naturally absorb that fluid once that pressure isn't being put on the fluid. And, it, you know, it, it takes a path of least resistance. And it's kind of sure. cool to see, you know, we'll usually follow if they have a significant syrinx over time to make sure that, you know, they're going in the right direction and that that's just resolving on its own. So it's pretty cool to see images uh from the imaging standpoint as well. But patients also get pretty significant relief right after surgery, if surgery is indicated. And that's if the symptoms were coming from the Chiari itself, they, they get pretty significant relief pretty early on after surgery. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that's got to be such a, you know, experiential thing for a patient. I mean, I can imagine going into a procedure like that and just the the hope, but also the apprehension and the, you know, the fear based the, in mm-hmm. just the intensity of the situation and then waking up and, and feeling relief. That would just be such a sigh of relief, you know, just to think about your life going yeah. forward being so much better. Especially with those pressure headaches. Like if you can imagine, you know, you're decompressed. So pretty soon after you're going to get relief of those pressure headaches. And for somebody who's been dealing with uh, debilitating, debilitating headaches for a long period of time and have been you know, treated with migraine medications that wouldn't necessarily be appropriate or help with those headaches, it's cool to see patients finally getting some relief when they weren't sure what was going on and they thought that nothing that doctors or other healthcare professionals were doing was working. So it's definitely gratifying to see. But like you said before, you know, you can imagine that because their quality of life has been affected for so long and they have all these other, um, you know, like cognitive issues and other things, maybe psychological issues that have developed, whether it's the psychological issues are from the QRE itself or just dealing with such a chronic condition. Um, that's something that you still have to address, even if the QRE symptoms and the QRE syndrome has improved after surgical decompression. Right. There's still, there's still a road forward, you know, to full recovery yeah. that, yeah. And that's um, something and that, that we're looking at. Sorry, ahead. didn't mean to interrupt you. No, it's something that we're looking at. Um, GNI starting a GNI center for Chiari and syringomyelia. And the main focus is not only just surgical decompression, because not all Chiari patients need surgery, but the other things to consider, like the cognition and the, and the you know, mental health issues, whether it's PTSD or depression or anxiety that might come from even just getting the diagnosis itself. So we're looking at addressing those things and trying to trying to treat a patient holistically rather than just looking at whether they need surgery or not. And if they don't, just see a <laughs> don't come back. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> no, I think there, that happens a lot. And, and folks have a lot of really negative health care experiences. And I hate to mm-hmm. use this word, but almost just customer service, just the way that they're treated is is often very poor. And that's a shame, yeah. you know, because, you know, it's it is in their head, literally, you know, and physically. But there's you've got to you've got to put yourself in people's shoes and understand the the suffering and how that impacts your uh, every aspect of your life. Right. So it, these people could be complicated, I'm sure, and, and very difficult to work with in certain circumstances. But that's that's where there's so much room for opportunity. It's easy to kind of pass the buck you know, and, and good luck find the next doctor kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. But there's so much of that in healthcare that if you are able to infuse a little bit of, I don't want to say customer service again, but like if you can infuse some of that experience and improve the patient experience along the way, I mean, that's such a powerful way to restore hope, you know, and, and to go along with just the physical improvements. It's understanding like, hey, you've got a process to walk through here, but we're going to walk with you hand in hand and help you navigate those next steps because we're not out of the woods just because, you know, we've got flow. It's let's let's make sure that we finish the job and get you where you need to go with yeah. some of these additional therapies or modalities. Yeah. I think that's what makes the best doctors or chiropractors or physical therapists or PAs is that like you need to not only 
utilize what you learned in school, but you have to fully listen to the patient and and get a bigger picture of what's going on rather than just being symptom and diagnosis based. Um, a lot of patients value that almost even more to being able to have that person to person conversation and kind of understand what the diagnosis is doing to their quality of life and how they're dealing with it at home as well. So I feel like it's important to consider both sides uh, when you're having when you have a person or a patient sitting in your office. And especially just considering the demographics. I mean, you're talking like just generally speaking, women in their 40s, right? So you're talking about mm-hmm. moms, you're talking about wives and caregivers and and um there's there's a huge toll that that takes, you know, on a on a family and on a society, frankly, when when um you know, women aren't feeling well, women aren't doing well. I mean, I know that, uh, you know, we've all, we all have friends or, you know, kids we grew up with who had a a mom that was sick or had a mom that was at, you know, not in their life. And it's, it's, I think about that kind of thing a lot. I don't, I don't know why, but it's, I think about Mm -hmm. just the toll, I guess maybe being a dad that really changed my perspective on a lot of things, but uh, you think about the toll that takes, you know, on a family and how, um, how important it is. I tell moms in here all the time, like moms around the world, like we've got to do everything we can to help you be at your best because you're doing it all, you know, like you're, you're the anchor to the family. You're providing a nurturing, caring, you know, experience for your kids that no one else can replace. I mean, it's a big deal. Yeah. And they barely have time for themselves, let alone to have a rare condition that they can't figure out what it is and going to all these different specialists just to try to hash out like what's causing what. So I can fully empathize with especially that population that affects, you know, that is affected by Chiari most often is like, like you said, they're just, they have so much stress on their plate already that this is just compounding to that. And it can take so long to kind of figure it all out, which is something to be said about like how the healthcare community needs to grow. Well, that's why I appreciate you guys making such an effort to to create content, high quality content put out there just so that there is, because, you know, for better or worse, folks are out there searching, you know, they're searching their mm-hmm. symptoms, they're searching for treatments, they're accessing information online. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of healthcare providers I've heard gripe about just the poor quality information that's out there. And, you know, my kind of like knee jerk reaction to that is, well, just good, make good content and put it out mm-hmm. there so that that lands at the top of the search. Right. And just put exactly. something out better to get in front of people so that they, they can cut that, you know, confusing, you know, uh, process of discovering the right information, you know, cut that yeah. down so that we can accelerate the process. Especially when there's like scary information out there as well. Like, <clears throat> I mean, if you go somewhere like the ASAP conference, you'll see that these patients have done more research than a lot of healthcare professionals. They're more yep. so experts than a lot of doctors and APPs and other healthcare professionals are. So, um, but at the same time, there are, there is some information out there that could be scary and almost cause more stress for them as well. Like um, in general, Chiari is not something that's life-threatening. And I think mm-hmm. that there's sometimes information out there that, you know, scares them into thinking that, you know, they're going to die at any point in time because of this condition, which isn't very true. So, yeah, I agree that it's important to decipher where you're getting your information from. And uh, I do think it's important. And what we're trying to do um, now is just 
make sure that the people who are actually experts in seeing these patients all the time are the ones that are providing the information to create more awareness, especially for something like Chiari that's on the more rare side of the spectrum. Yeah. And we were talking just, just before we started recording here that the thing that makes you good at being a healthcare provider is also the thing that is, is maybe like, what does it make it so exciting to be online, you know, to be creating content, to be in front of a camera, to be public speaking. I mean, these are skills yes. that then you have to develop, you know, to be able to meet that need. And it's like, no one else is going to do it. So yeah. I tip my hat to you for making an effort, you know, for you oh, guys. Thank you. I'm, yeah. Well, I'm still working on it personally, but we have a lot of great speakers in our organization. So it's good because, you know, Dr. Vez, Dr. Lehman, all, all of the neurosurgeons that we have on board are, are used to speaking a lot. So they're good at yeah. putting that content out. So it's yeah, he's helpful. very charismatic and, uh, yeah. you know, fun to listen to. And that's, that's a mm-hmm. unique set of skills that uh, he possesses. So definitely let's talk about the treatment options because that's, you know, you made a good point, which is that this is, this is not like a life threatening emergent situation. Mm-hmm. You've probably had it for a long, long time, you know, and the yeah. symptoms may have progressed in the way that they did, but you don't have to rush to surgery. Right. So understanding even just the time horizon and being able to calm down, take a beat mm-hmm. and just start to evaluate treatment options. You know, let's, let's uh, talk about the, sort of those different options and the situations in which they may be appropriate. Sure. So like on one side of the spectrum, you can imagine um, if somebody gets diagnosed with a Chiari malformation and they don't even have any symptoms, a lot of Chiari malformations are asymptomatic. Um, right. By no means would we ever suggest surgery for that patient because if they're if it's not going to help their quality of life like what are we actually doing for them um right. granted if they develop symptoms later on then we'd say of course come back and we'll assess what needs to be done but if you're asymptomatic there's no reason for you to be having surgery because surgery is permanent and there needs to be a goal for surgery to be done um so that being said asymptomatic patients it's just something to know that you have a Chiari malformation for maybe things like a lumbar puncture in the future mm-hmm. um, that can maybe worsen a Chiari malformation. But otherwise, if if you're okay, then there's not too much to be done from a treatment standpoint, neurosurgically, or um, you know, to cover the other aspects like psychology or, or uh, the cognitive effects as well. But um, if you know, we we assess whether they're surgical, and if that's something that needs to be done, then usually that'll entail, like I said before, a decompression, um, where they do a suboccipital craniectomy, remove some of the bone back there to open up that space, and then a lot of times a they will open up the dura and shrink the tonsils, and then do a duraplasty to kind of get a tight watertight seal back there and close them up so that that area is really decompressed and allows the CSF to go through. Um, And what we do is we are now assessing patients for those other symptoms that aren't always addressed. So we have like an intake form that we use through our Chiari Center that does a a patient-administered survey that kind of addresses whether they're having other issues like sleep issues, um, whether they are depressed or anxious, whether they have cognitive problems or, um, you know, whether they have a sport group at home 
because if if not, then we can point them in the direction with the right resources. Um, and then, you know, it's always important, whether they're surgical or not, along the spectrum to get other healthcare professionals like you guys and like PT and OT and, um, you know, people who can do a more conservative uh, treatment for some of the other things they might be dealing with, weakness, uh, pain, yeah. and numbness, tingling. Well, we we won't even touch on the sort of like connective tissue side of it and the hypermobility conditions, yeah. things like that. That's a conversation for another day. But um, <laughs> I, I, the the surgical interventions are really interesting to me. I think I didn't realize there was a lot of controversy about this too, like open versus closed types of decompressions. Mm-hmm. And you know, Doctor Vez is very uh, feels very convicted that shrinking the tonsils is is an important step in that process and cauterizing that tissue so that that actually does. Um, you know, more or less guarantee a decompression. Um, and some folks like to leave the dura, you know, closed. And, and they say that opening up the the, osteo- the osteological structures like provides enough room for flow to be restored. But it seems like a lot of times you have to go back in later and, yep. you know, do a second, a second procedure, which is, you know, another, that's another set of risks. So exactly. uh, maybe explain a little bit about why you think there is controversy, you know, around those procedures and, and why you guys do things the way you do. Yeah. I mean, I think most of the controversy comes from the fact that there's just not enough research out there Mm -hmm. that's been done on Chiari. And I think that's improving, you know, more and more studies are coming out, um, year after year, uh, with like clinical based evidence on what's the best treatment option and, you know, other aspects of Chiari care. But, um, what Dr. Vez typically does, like you said, is shrink the tonsils and, you know, he comes from a, a viewpoint of less surgery, the better. Um, we don't want to introduce those inherent risks of surgery if you don't have to, um, the risk of opening up the dura, especially in the immediate post-op period is they can have a CSF leak, um, and that can create a pseudomeningocele. Um, which might require you to have it, you know, a repair of the duraplasty in the future. Um, that's that doesn't always happen, um, but that is always a risk when you do open up the dura, and it also points you in another direction of, you know, if they're having a CSF leak, is there something like hydrocephalus that's going on that's creating too much pressure on on the patch? So it directs us to see if there's other things that need to be done, like a shunt placement to redirect the fluid so that you don't keep getting those issues. But in general, shrinking the tonsils seems, I'm not an expert uh, or a neurosurgeon, but from my work with Dr. Vez and from all of my research that I've done and the patients I've seen is that we get better outcomes with shrinking the tonsils because it opens up that area more. And, you know, it creates more of a decompression of that space to adequately restore CSF flow. Yeah. Yeah. I was really interested to hear about the different, um, like the meshes and things like that. And some folks that can actually, mm-hmm. you know, measure CSF flow through, through the patch, you know, um, without having to open folks up and, and you can mo- mm-hmm. monitor that with ultrasound over time to make sure yep. that the, the flow is adequate. That's fascinating. I mean, really cool technology and then that like bovine pericardium is that what yeah a lot of the yeah, patches that's are? what we that's, typically use it's got to be tough yeah. stuff i mean you know the, the thing that's interesting about this is 
techniques develop. You know, it was interesting to hear the surgeons at the ASAP conference talk about this same frustration that I've had with my field, which is you've got you've got this tension right between the tried and true methods and the things that we've always done and sort of the the techniques that we've really um, historically leaned on, and then we've got innovation and trying to push things in a new direction and and to you know create that that base of evidence so that we can confidently you know, sort of pioneer new techniques and new procedures. Mm-hmm. The stakes are much higher, obviously, with neurosurgery than chiropractic. We could probably iterate on the fly a little bit faster <laughs> than you guys for that. But um, I was also interested to know that there's really not a huge mountain of, you know, level one, two evidence that that yeah. uh, underpins a lot of these techniques. And that that's a tough thing to do. You know, how do you, um, how do you double blind a neurosurgical procedure, right? How do you randomize yeah. that to a control group and a non-surgical group and compare outcomes? It's really, some of that's really difficult, but I appreciate that the, that the folks at ASAP and others are, are doing that work and seeking grants and, and even things like, you know, we don't have to get too into it, but medical marijuana and some of the other yeah. um, treatments that are being researched as effective ways to help manage symptoms. Um, it's, it's not just let's get better at surgery. It's let's get better at, you know, taking care of these people. Yeah, and that's a study that we have going on now is uh, using medical marijuana in the curare population because you know the headaches are are what's usually the most common and the most debilitating for them, but the classic migraine medications don't always you know work for those types of headaches. So we've found that there's a large amount of evidence that shows that medical marijuana you know is is more helpful for the curare symptoms than any other type of headache medication that we might throw at them. So wow. it's it's definitely interesting. But like you yeah. said, yeah, it's crazy to see like what was done not that long ago because the surgical approach is so different. Um I mean, we always try to move towards like a minimally invasive approach to avoid any complications, but looking back and what how much they used to take off with the bone is it's just wild to see, um, but it's it's great that we have like the ASAP conference and other types of platforms where you know surgeons and other healthcare professionals can come together and actually you know converse in one place and say you know this has been working for me and this this hasn't. Yeah. So I think that's research almost in itself. Hundred percent, yeah, and, and I do think it's worth mentioning you know for for patients or folks that are. Um, you know, potentially dealing with these situations and, and assessing their options. I think it's also good to recognize that your your friendly local neurosurgeon may or may not be up to date on all this stuff, may or may not be sort of aware of um, these advancements. <clears throat> and so I would, I mean, if it were me or a family member, I would be prone and willing to travel to see, you know, someone who's kind of at the tip of the spear. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, it's, Folks don't understand that. I mean, even with primary care providers and, and everything in between, right? You kind of assume whoever you're in front of is up to date and really and really yeah. sharp. And it's not always the case. And that's not to uh not to put anybody down, but it's it takes a lot of effort to maintain your your schedule and your lifestyle and your um your caseload in these types of settings, let alone read research, conduct research, you know, be able to, to pioneer new techniques. So mm-hmm. uh, all the more reason to to lean on organizations like ASAP as a, if nothing else, a directory of sort of who are the top docs in the field and, and how can we, um, you know, leverage their experience and wisdom to get the best possible information. Yeah, exactly. I think, I mean, that's what makes a good provider in general is that they're, 
staying educated. But like you said, it's not nobody's coming to their doorstep saying like giving them a quiz every morning before they go to see you. So you kind of have to do your research. One, you can just look at patient reviews and patient experiences. Um, But two, yeah, people who are putting this information out are usually the leaders in the field. So it's it's helpful to use those types of societies and organizations to kind of gain direction and what teams you might want to be uh, evaluated by. And it's, it's also, I think, important for other healthcare providers to be aware of these organizations just so that they have an idea of those, those folks too, you know, and I think that awareness is like the key to most, most things progressing mm-hmm. in life is like, you need to know what to work on. You need to know what information you don't have that'll take you from here to there. And that's a big part of, um, you know, putting out content and also creating these organizations and keeping them strong and cohesive and continuing to do the events in different parts of the country and things too. So, um, Mm -hmm. I appreciate all that work that you guys are doing with it. So, um, I'm curious from your, from your point of view, speaking to chiropractors, like give us maybe a couple, um, how do I want to put it? Like, what do you want chiropractors to know about working with these people? I know we, we work with a lot of headache patients, what concerns would you have for chiropractors dealing with these patients? Uh, what um, diagnostic uh, clues would you give for folks uh, that are sort of frontline musculoskeletal care people to, to be paying attention for these types of situations? Yeah, I think what would be important to consider would be, one, it's always good to have an MRI before any type of like manipulation to the area. Because um, if you can imagine if they're so crowded in that area and any type of manipulation is done, it can affect that, uh, the tissue, the brain tissue that's, that's kind of plugged up in that area. So an MRI would a hundred percent always be great to, to start with just to kind of assess, you know, what you're working with. Um, also the presence of a syrinx, uh, would be good to know whether that's there or not, because, you know, trauma can oftentimes, uh, cause syrinx. So any type of further manipulation with the series could also, you know, create some type of symptoms or exacerbate symptoms. So I think those would be the two main things to do is just make sure that, you know, you know what what you're working with before the patient comes in with a baseline imaging study. Um, But then also, I mean, I think what's important, especially with us and like our relationship with other providers like you guys is if you're seeing something like we everyone has a limited time with patients in general i think you know something i'm trying to do is converse with them maybe outside of the office visit to get more information but if you're seeing something that you know seems like a red flag or if if they're telling you their symptoms are worsening or like you notice something um you know during your practice that might see abnormal then I think it's always good to keep an open communication um, so that, you know, you can tell us if, if you guys notice things then that we might not have seen in the office. It's so important to know because patients don't yeah. always know what's related to it and what's not. So I think never hesitate to reach out. Um, if if you're seeing a lot of these patients and you know what to look out for, then it's good to keep your antennas up and and talk to the people that need to be spoken to, especially because, 
you know, if you guys are listening to this and have a good background of PRI malformation, maybe a primary care provider doesn't see it as often. So maybe if you're, you know, if you have imaging or if you see these types of symptoms or signs, then just let them know that this is something to consider because, you know, these patients are going undiagnosed and you might be the person to, to pick it up. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of what I was thinking as you were talking there is, is number one, like do a good history in the first place, like understand these, these signs, you know, that might put your Mm -hmm. antennas up, like you said, these Valsalva induced headaches and these types of, um, uh, these types of clues are important. And believe, believe it or not, I mean, there, there are chiropractors in our field that are sort of like really, I don't want to say anti-imaging, but they're very antagonistic to ordering imaging early for some reason. Mm-hmm. And and for for situations like this, I do see that like, you know what, if you slow down and you gather more data, the patient is not going to fault you for, you know, taking a conservative approach and gathering all the right information. And we're motivated 100%. to help people and we, and we want to get to intervening, you know, so that we can see things improve. But I do think there is credence in like slowing down, getting the right information and, and following these clues and educating yourself on these clues so that you're not missing, you know, you're not having the conversation later when a patient's feeling worse or when, you know, they mm-hmm. found, uh, you know, they had a neurology appointment, got the MRI and found out, well, I had this, you know, I had this lower brain malformation and my chiropractor was working on me and didn't know about it. I mean, yeah. we often can be the ones that may start this conversation and identify some mm-hmm. of these things because folks we're easy to access, right? It's easier to get to a chiropractor than a neurosurgeon. It's it, mm-hmm. we can order and read MRIs, you know, and we've got folks seeking us out all day, every day for things like headaches and migraines and neck pain and numbness and tingling. So um, yeah. I think it's worth, that, that's the important part of having this conversation is just to elevate our understanding. Cause much like you, I mean, we, we were not well-trained in this, you know, type of um, type of thinking and patient management. And, you know, for better or worse, that's just kind of the nature of it. So I think it, it behooves all of us, especially if you're going to work in the craniocervical junction, you really got to know what you're dealing with. You got to be aware of uh, some of the conditions that are non-musculoskeletal that are going to impact, you know, not just your your results, you know, with your patient, but also, you know, their understanding and, and an accurate diagnosis of their condition. Definitely. So it's a, it's a good opportunity. I, I see it as a as a really powerful opportunity to be able to uh, provide answers, you know, for folks. And I've had plenty of folks where, you know, I might not have treated them, but I was able to help, you know, identify some things and to to sort of help that, um, help navigate the healthcare system, understand how to be efficient, you know, with your time and money and, and getting to the right answers. And I, yeah. I find that as a, as a huge value that we have to offer too. So <clears throat> especially for the yeah. students listening, you know, don't assume that you're going to get everything in school that you're going to need to know to be able to really adequately uh, you know, deal with these people and, and, you know, keep your chiropractic you know, treatments and paradigms, you know, conservative in front of mind, but also be aware of some of the things that are outside of our scope that are going to be relevant to the patients that we, that we may see. And these aren't going to be people that you see for us. It's not going to be, I mean, it might be a few times a year that I see someone who's got a, a QR malformation or, or symptoms relevant to that. So it's not a, it's not a common finding. So you need to all the more reason why you slow down. And when those situations come up to your point, Mm-hmm. You know, take a beat and do your due diligence and make sure that you don't just treat it like a, a typical uh, musculoskeletal case, like understand, you know, when and, and how you need to escalate uh, to the next level of either diagnostics or, you know, keeping open lines of communication with other providers. So. Definitely. No, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Awesome. Um, 
any last words of encouragement, whether for, for providers who, who could be dealing with these patients and are maybe frustrated with the tools that they have available or their knowledge or education, or maybe even for patients who are struggling and trying to find answers, like what, what words of encouragement would you have? Yeah, I would say, I mean, research is, you know, getting there. I think that we're getting to a better place where, you know, we're increasing awareness for the, for healthcare providers and just the patient population in general, where more people are getting MRIs. So we're seeing more and more that this is uh, more prevalent than we had originally thought. And about, you know, the incidence is like 1% of the population at this point. So I think Mm -hmm. that, you know, we're working in the right direction. Um, Like we said before, you know, some of the approaches were not that long ago were much different than what we're doing now. So you can see that there's been advancements. Um, And I would say, you know, for healthcare providers, it's important to, like you said, just continue your education on maybe some things that you might not see all the time so that you're not missing things. Um, and for patients, especially patients with Chiari, I would say also, you know, do the education, make sure that, um, you know, you're getting to the right people and you're, you're getting adequate care and that, you know, other types of symptoms uh, aren't being overlooked. If you're having any cognitive issues, if you're having, you know, mental health issues, that's important to be addressed as well and something that you shouldn't be alone in dealing with. Absolutely. And there are outcome assessment tools and screeners and a lot of ways that you can, you know, practically, practically provide a few layers of, of data collection in the first place. You know, you can modify your intake procedures to gather this information. And if, yep. you know, 75% of people never check the box, that's great. But the, for the 25% that do and you catch that, that can make the difference. So exactly. Awesome. Yep, and that's what we're trying to do with the Kiari Center is just pick up with different intake forms that we can triage them to neuropsychologists or PT or or support groups or a therapist. So I think that's important just to kind of for any type of healthcare facility to just look at it more holistically um, and treat the patient, not just the condition or disease. Hey, we just wanted to say thank you for listening to Atlas of Chiropractic. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. Go ahead and subscribe to the show and turn on notifications so that you're the first to know about new episodes. Leave a rating and review to let others know how you really feel about the conversations we're having. And last thing, check the show notes for relevant links, contact info, and resources that we mentioned during this episode. 